Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about dying well in America, how to find a divine path to the end of life with my first guest, Dr. Herbert Anderson. This interview was originally broadcast in May of 2016. And with me today is Reverend Dr. Herbert A. Anderson. He is the author or co-author of over 90 articles and 13 books on topics such as Death and Grief, Family Living, Ritual and Narrative, Empathy, Leaving Home and Living Alone, Men's Spirituality, Suicide, Outpatient Care, Hospitality, and Sense and Nonsense in the Wisdom of Dr. Seuss. He last taught at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary in Berkeley. Uh, he continues to be a core doctoral faculty at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley as research professor of practical theology. He's taught for many years. And prior to beginning today's show, we were talking about the first class that he taught at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 70s. Welcome, Herb. I'm so happy to have you with us. Very glad to be here. Um, this is a subject you and I spoke of also before we got started that is near and dear, obviously, to your heart. It's your life's passion and the work that you've done, the lion's share of your research and study and teaching on, and yet it's a very uncomfortable conversation for many of us to have. I think that's very true, uh, and for reasons that sometimes are even unknown to us. Why, why are we so uncomfortable talking about something that is so inevitable? Yeah. We talk about birth. We talk about yep. taxes. But we're not talking about the D word as if it were like the C word, Right. Well, yeah, that's all. And, and the other thing, I just had a conversation earlier this morning with a friend who has moved from a house he had lived in for 42 years uh, into a retirement village. And he is in profound grief, disoriented. And it, it reminds me of, of a book that I wrote many, many years ago called All Our Losses, All Our Griefs. And, and that is to say our preparation for dying will be enhanced if we can pay attention to all kinds of losses in our lives for which we also grieve, and sometimes mm. as profoundly as we do for the loss of someone we love. I completely agree with you, and I, I shared a little bit about my own experience and how I came to really focus in on this subject. Part of the service work that I do is I work with seniors who are caregivers, on a monthly basis. And this came up as a need and a topic that they really wanted to explore. You know, they all felt that they were in the winters of their lives. They are in the right. winters of their lives. And yet nobody's having this frank 
conversation that not only encompasses the logistics of dying, but the great mysteries of it, in fact. Yes, yes, exactly. T.S. Eliot once said that there are really two basic questions in life, one of which is, what shall we do about it? Whatever the it is, that is <laughs> the problem that has to be solved. The second question is, how should we live towards it? And in this case, I think, how should we live towards death? How shall we acknowledge that, and I'm just about to reach 80, how shall we acknowledge that our life is finite, we will not live forever, and to find ways to embrace the reality of that death is part of life, and how we live towards death will enrich how we live. Mm. I completely agree. This conversation, it's a national conversation. In some cases, it's a more far-reaching global conversation. In other cultures, of course, death is not uh, a taboo subject, as it is here. But certainly in a lot of the Western world, we are not comfortable um, talking about it. We're not comfortable embracing our own grief. And I think, like you so elegantly stated, the losses that we have as a natural part of our life course. Exactly, exactly. And, and I guess if we could embrace, not I guess, I believe if we could embrace all of those losses and live them, experience them, face them, as my, as my friend was this morning, talking about how disoriented he is, trying to figure out how to live in a new place after 42 years in the same place. And that's people who you're talking to who are nearing the end of life, who have left homes and gone to retirement villages, often experience the same kind of disorientation that comes out of uh, this continuity. It's a little bit of an aside, but Paul Tillich, who was a great theologian at Harvard uh, in the end of his career, uh, is reported to have said in a sermon, Lord, help me bring my death into my life, lest death take my life from me. Lord, Mm -hmm. help me bring my death into my life, lest death take my life from me. And the point he's making, which I thoroughly agree with, and which is the, which is really the focus of the book that I wrote with Karen Spearstra, although we didn't have the quote. The, the point of the quote is, is that if we can embrace life, then death isn't something that takes life from us. It's simply a part of life. And we, we, come to, we embrace it, and then as, as it comes near to us, we can live towards death in a way that in some curious way will make happiness more possible. It's an interesting thought. Oh, it, it is, it's the paradox. And the book that yes. you're speaking of is The Divine Art of Dying, which we, we're really talking about elements of that book here. But something came to mind as you were speaking about the cycle of birth, life, death, and renewal, and that is the work of Joseph Campbell, who talks about the necessity of being willing to die in order to be reborn. Yeah, and, and people will think about that in a range of ways uh, around the around the world. The 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 ways that we think about life after death, what will be varied. But one yes. of the things that I think is at the core of it is that all of us long for continuity in life, and death does seem why part of part of the reason why I think it's hard to talk about is that it is a kind of radical discontinuity. That is, life stops. 
And then we find all kinds of ways, uh, as a Christian, as a Jewish person, as you are, as people all over the globe, we find a variety of ways to think about how life continues in spite of death. And uh, my co-author, Karen Spierstra, was very clear that she was on a journey toward a mystery that she did not know, but she really was looking forward to the next, the next mystery in her life. Isn't that an interesting perspective, that if we can come to know, to trust within ourselves and, and trust the process of this cycle, that the next step or the next paradigm that we're entering is part of the, the great mystery that awaits us, which reframes it from something to be feared right. into something that sparks curiosity and awe and wonder. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and she had it. I mean, she lived with a magnificent sense of wonder and awe all through her life. And at the end, this is how she, this is how the book uh, concludes with her comment. Stars pepper the night sky and the labyrinth Milky Way will undergird my passage becomes a scarf of light. The same sky has been hanging over my head for 73 years, but now I can see it finally. Everything is mystery. It's all so much more than I thought. All of this is not easy, but it is, at some mysterious level, perfect. Mm. That is absolutely beautiful. Wow. Well, she, and she believed it. And I would love to say that I have the same disposition, and I'm working towards it. Because all of us, I mean, it's, it's also about willingness to bear surprise. I mean, how many people hate birthday surprises or any other surprises in their life? So to think about coming to the end of a life and knowing that there is yet a surprise ahead, something new, something will happen, some, and I believe it, that, that I will not be separated from God in some fashion that is beyond my knowing. It's a mystery. I love what you just said, the willingness to bear surprise. Because we, we just don't know. But this really is a long overdue conversation. And we're going to go to a break in a moment. And when we return, I'd love to speak with you further about how the medical profession is so poorly trained and equipped until recently. I mean, there are some wonderful books that have come out that have been published that really do address this topic head on. But it's not something that is now a part of the national conversation. And I want to I want to talk with you about that, because I think it, it could change a lot, change a lot about the grief and loss process, not to minimize it, but offer a different perspective. I think I agree. I'll look forward to it. Me too. We're going to take a break. And I want to once again mention the book. It's The Divine Art of Dying. And the website to learn more about Herb Anderson is Herbert Anderson. Dot org. We'll come back. We'll carry on the conversation of this very sensitive and heartfelt subject. But if I could just pose a question before we go, and that is to maybe identify areas in your life that have had to die in order for you to find new life, new perspective, and a new part of your journey ahead. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we're having a difficult conversation. We're talking about dying well in America, how to find a divine path to the end of life. Let's return back to the conversation with Dr. Herbert Anderson that was originally broadcast in May of 2016. Herb, prior to the break, we were started to talk about the medical profession and where there may be some deficits that could be bridged to really being more direct, honest, and connected in having this kind of conversation. Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting that, that, uh, that you should bring that up because uh, the change has just been made in Medicare uh, the payments so that now it's possible to have a half-hour conversation with your physician uh, and have it reimbursed uh, up to, uh, I don't know, $80 or something like that, uh, a conversation with your physician about end-of-life issues. That has not been mm. until now a possibility. And so, and so that opens up the possibility that there will be, that there, that there might be more conversations, that physicians are willing to take the time to talk with a patient about their life, uh, the phrase that I would use is life-limiting illness. And I, uh, you know, a life-threatening illness may be also an occasion to, to talk about it. But once it's determined that they have an illness that will limit their life, uh, we used to call that terminal illness, but it's not. That's not a felicitous term. Uh, once no, it is not. <laughs> yeah, but once they ha- they are faced with a life limiting illness, then to be able to have a conversation with their doctor about how shall they move forward, and what treatment possibilities are there, what treatment options do they have, and that this can be a conversation both with physician and families. Uh, it, and I think it, it is it is sort of now the the code. And, and it's nice that you've brought it up. The code is simply having the conversation. It's what you're, what you're, the people that you are talking with in the, in the retirement center or the, 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 the that want to have the, con, the conversation. And we need to have the conversation with our children. But you know what? We have a hard time having conversations with our children about our estate. Yes. Um, and that's just a prelude to talking about how shall we how shall we deal with what treatments will we do as as we come to the end of a life. But, but so it's all about inviting people to start practicing having a conversation about about limits, about finitude, about nothing lasts forever, about about what shall, what, what's the nature of the estate and how shall it be divided. All of this is conversation that opens up the possibility of thinking about the end of life. And what I believe happens in these conversations is instead of it taking on a morose tone or a dark tone, it ends up being a very choice-driven conversation about how do we wish to live right right and i was saying to you before the break that that's exactly true and i was saying to you before we took a break that there are impediments to this that can be dealt with and not the least of which is the the willingness for everybody to be transparent one of the things that i learned most of all from karen uh spearstra in writing this book with her because she was dying while we wrote the book and died after we finished doing all the proofings of the, of the manuscript. But she was transparent about her dying. She didn't hide it. And it was liberating for her. It was liberating for her husband, John, and her two sons, for the, all the friends that she met. And she became, ironically, at the end of her life, um, another kind of celebrity in northern Vermont, 
She was on the radio. She was in the newspaper. And people were calling her because she was willing to be transparent. And that's yeah. not always easy for everybody. But it, it, you know, the absence of transparency leads to secrecy. And secrecy leads to loneliness and isolation and not happiness. So it is and yes, depression. I mean, all the things Absolutely. that we don't Absolutely. want to have happen begin to happen. Yep. And, the, and one of the other themes that I just want to, to be sure to, to get up, because it's something we don't talk enough about, and that is the whole question about human agency and, and about patient and personal autonomy. One of the things that children do to aging parents, and I, I'm 80 I'll be 80 in a month, and so I've already been the recipient of it, is that they presume that their parents are not quite as capable as they used to be. And so there, there gets to be some challenge to, to my agency, my capacity to choose and to act. But that is one of the gifts that, that a conversation can give to an individual who is facing a life-limiting illness, that they can make choices about their life. And then the choices they can make will enable them to live as fully as possible until they die. That's the whole point of our little book. And that is to enable people to, to, make, to take a turn toward death, to embrace the reality that death is near in their life, hard as that is. And then to find ways to live towards that reality. Now, some people will have bucket lists and they'll have all kinds of places to go. Other people will tend the garden and watch the flowers and mark the sunset. It is the capacity for aging that agency that really also liberates people in, in a remarkable way. Well, isn't that part of what Maslow and, and his hierarchy of needs, a feeling Absolutely. as though our, our base is stable, that we have some sense of control over our lives, and then from there we, we move upward? Right. And, and you cannot control the, on, the ongoingness of a cancer, for example, or of, of a uh, friend was just telling me the other day of somebody who's, who has Lou Gehrig's disease. And these are, it, they're just going on their relentless way. But it is possible to exercise control over the daily things that we can choose about. I'm sorry where that is coming from. This is the conversation, which involves exactly. a lot of heart, heartfelt listening. You know, on yep. the part of the family members, on the part of the medical profession, to invite invite the the patient or the person who is is moving towards that final step to really speak. That that, that creating a safe space in which to be heard. You were asking about the medical profession, and I think one of the things that can uh, that will need to change, especially as we move towards a greater openness in talking and having the conversation and talking about end of life care, is that um, the, uh, is the dread of abandonment by the part on the part of somebody with a life limiting illness, uh, first by the medic, maybe first by their family that they will they will they will stay away. I mean, I was a hospital chaplain, and I could watch the nurses not walk by a room where somebody was dying just because they didn't want to go in. Or physicians who will say, I don't want somebody to die on my watch. And so they pass them on to somebody else once they have been diagnosed with an illness from which they will, will, from which they will die. 
So if we come to a time, as I long for, and I think we're moving towards it, where there's greater openness and greater recognition of the reality of limits in life and not everything's possible, that we will also need to promise faithfulness to one another. Physicians will be faithful to their patients. Families will be faithful to the ones they love. Friends will not abandon somebody who's dying because they don't know what to say. They can go and listen and be present. The faithfulness to one another, I I think that is extremely powerful, but it begets asking the question, can we be faithful to ourselves? If we cannot extend that emotional courtesy or that virtue to ourselves, it's impossible to extend it to someone else. So it, it really asks the question or challenges one to develop that sense of faithfulness within, from within. Right. Right, which also begins with the acceptance of my own being a finite person, my mm-hmm. own being a limited person. And probably hardest of all is the powerlessness that people feel. A friend of mine's wife just died of, of uh, I live in Sonoma, California, and she just died of, very quickly, finally, of a, of a cancer. And, and what he said over and over again was it's the powerlessness that he felt. He was powerless to stop anything, stop the cancer. And when we feel powerless, we flee sometimes. We don't, that's not a feeling we want. No, no. What about changes to practices in hospice care or palliative care that might be helpful in this process, you know, in in the conversation? Right. Well, one of the things, and that's a very important uh, theme that you brought up, because we, until recently, it was assumed that a person was eligible for hospice only when they were actively dying. And actively dying is usually defined by the last 10 weeks or three or four months of a person's life. With palliative care now, it is possible to move that back and to say, as my friend Karen, with whom I wrote the book, she decided after 10 years with ovarian cancer that she she was not going to do any more treatments. And well, she lived eight more months. We wrote the book in that time. But she decided... She decided she would do no more chemotherapy, even though she had been, it had been working. She wanted the quality of life at the, at the end. And so palliative care makes it possible for us to move back the time so that a person can say, okay, I'm not going to do any more life continuing, extending treatment. I'm not looking for one more magic cure. I I will die. I'm going to accept that. And then I'm going to find how I can live as fully as possible. What stories will I tell? What gifts will I give away? What flowers will I see? What sunsets will I experience? All of that then becomes possible because palliative care has made it possible for us to live with pain for a longer period of time. Once Mm. Karen made that decision, even though she wasn't, when she decided, actively dying, then she did have to become a part of hospice, which says you can't do any more life-sustaining treatment. That's That's the criteria. But it does, the palliative care has really opened up the possibility of a longer and a more fulfilling and rich time before death uh, in people's lives. 
Thank you, Reverend Dr. Herbert A. Anderson. The book, once again, is The Divine Art of Dying, How to Live Well While Dying, and it was co-written with Karen Spearstra. And to learn more, please visit herbertanderson.org. Thank you. This is a conversation that makes me happy to have. You know, it's not necessarily a happy subject matter, but it allows us to be empowered to embrace joy in the best ways that we can. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and I totally agree. Thank you. Thank you. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about, well, I would say it's a difficult conversation about living and dying well in America, how to find a divine path to the end of life. My next guest is Dr. Jessica Nuttick-Zitter, and this conversation was originally broadcast in May of 2018. My first guest today is Dr. Jessica Nuttick-Zitter, author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, it it is a pleasure. And it is a pleasure to delve into this very delicate subject with you because you have a new book entitled Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. Talk about what brought you to want to write about a subject that many of us think is unmentionable. Well, you know, it started out really just being a continuation of my lifelong journal where I was trying to process a lot of the feelings that I was having in my early years as a as an intern resident and then pulmonary and critical care doctor um, where I was seeing a lot of suffering and I wasn't really figuring out any alternative approaches to, to managing that suffering. And I, I wrote in order to process my, my own suffering, my own moral distress. And eventually, as I started to change my own paradigm about how we should deliver the best care, um, I started, I found the palliative care movement and then found that I was able to treat patients in a way that made me feel a lot more optimistic and certainly resulted in what looked to me like much better ends of life for a lot of the patients I was caring for. And so then I began writing more optimistic pieces and it congealed into a book. And so that's how it, that's how it happened. And a great book it is. Congratulations, by the way. It, it, that is like giving birth and then some. <laughs> <laughs> True. Let's um, talk a little bit about palliative care, because some of our listeners might not know exactly what that means. To palliate uh, comes from this Latin word palliare, which means to cloak. And try to imagine a person taking a big, warm, fuzzy quilt and cloaking a patient who's suffering. And it's really about managing symptoms, managing distress, managing grief, managing anxiety, depression, anything that might come up that could affect a person. And that's what palliative care is all about. And, you know, obviously we palliative care practitioners are skilled at the management, the medical management of, of, of again, 
symptoms, you know, physical symptoms as well as emotional symptoms, but we're also very skilled at communication between um, the healthcare team and patients, providing information transfer in a as sensitive a way as possible so that patients can really and their families can absorb information and ultimately be empowered to make better decisions that, that are more corresponding to who they are as people. And palliative care in America is different perhaps than it is in some other countries who may be more progressive in the conscious dying movement. So I think that what you what you speak of and you write about is very important because it's good to know that we A, don't have to die alone, that we don't need to die hooked up to machines or even in a hospital for that matter. Right, right. I think that the beauty here is that once we, you know, use these communication skills that I was just talking about to really bring out preferences and goals and, and values of, a, of an individual patient, um, then we can really start to figure out what's most important and start to attend to creating that environment for them. And when we talk about advancements in medicine in the 21st century, people are living longer. And in many cases, that is a good thing. We all want our loved ones to stick around as long as possible. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. This is true. I think, you know, as the median age has skyrocketed, really, you know, we are seeing a lot of different things rising, which is a beautiful thing that we can have our loved ones around for longer, but we're seeing the rise of, you know, the incidence of uh, increasing incidence of dementia and other types of cancers, very serious cancers, and things that we hadn't necessarily seen when people were dying at younger ages. And so I think we've got to adjust the way we think about illness a little bit now and, and start to understand that it can be much more serious and as bodies age and minds age and brains age, there's a lot of things that our technologies can do, but they can't, they can't fix certain types of processes that, have, that are going to be more prevalent in, in, in older populations. Nor can we stave off the exit door, right? I mean, this is the other part of the discussion, <laughs> as much as we'd like to. <laughs> right. Absolutely. As long as we, we want a magic pill, we want, you know, some kind of magic miracle fix and um, we're all sort of looking for that because as old as the human psyche to try to evade death but the reality is even though we've got more tools and technology now than we ever did I mean certainly the past hundred years we've created all sorts of fantastic and miraculous technologies but they still cannot stave off death. When you witnessed your first code in the ER when like it got real what, how did you react? What were you thinking? What were you feeling besides what you were trained to do? What were the other parts at work? Well, what was happening at the time was, you know, I had, it was right after I'd finished medical school and um, I was just in the beginning of my internship. And I had for, you know, I really was excited about being this very intensive type of doctor and using a whole bunch of, you know, fast reflexive actions and different kinds of technologies to save life. And so I was looking forward to my first code and I had memorized every protocol. What do you do with this type of cardiac arrest or that type of cardiac arrest? And so the code buzzer went off and, and we all ran, you know, up a few flights of stairs towards this room. And I just was so excited. And as I ran in the door, I saw that this patient was very, sick and clearly had been sick for years. And now I could just tell by looking at this person that this person seemed to have 
lost all life. This was there was not an ounce of fat or muscle on this body, and you could you could just see that that this person was really beyond saving. There were there were residents already doing chest compressions. I could hear the person's chest cracked and breaking, and it was it was horrifying. And I was then pulled into it myself, and it was a shocking experience for me. It really was. I say the first time I realized that this could be pretty brutal. But because I didn't have any other model for how to do things, I just thought that was part of what we were supposed to do. That was just what we all did. And it seemed like, you know, there were going to be some bad codes, but, you know, it was still the right approach and you you still needed to sort of treat every patient that way with this default high, high intensity intervention. The, the heroic intervention to do everything humanly possible when, in fact, some of us may not desire that, which talks speaks to another element of this equation as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's really, there are certain people, there are certain situations where I would argue strongly that there's no need to ask questions. You just you just go in there and do what you need to do. A young person who, you know, has trauma or even a, a young person with a, a reversible virus like polio, I mean, you take that person and you support them and you try everything you can to get them through the illness and through the trauma so that you can come out the, they can come out the other side. The people that I think require more communication, conversation before we default to these automatic life-saving procedures are people who are in a different category of illness, whose illness is progressive, long-standing, and possibly not going to, you know, and, and not going to be fixed by life support. Um, the illness itself may be very advanced. And so those people, I think you have to be very careful about before you assume and, and rush into things and ask and talk. Um, sometimes you don't have time. And then in those situations, I agree that we default to prolongation of life and then have the conversation afterwards. But most of the time, we have time to talk about these things first. We're going to go to a break. And before we do, I just want to bring up a phrase that I learned from your book, and that is the end of life conveyor belt. And so I'd like to talk about that when we return. The book we are talking about today is Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, written by Dr. Jessica Zitter, MD. To learn more, please visit jessicazitter.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Jessica Zitter. And on Facebook, guess what? Jessica Zitter. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're having a a difficult conversation about dying well in America, how to find a divine path to the end of life. And this conversation with Dr. Jessica Nuttick-Zitter was originally broadcast in May of 2018. Let's return to the conversation. So Jessica, at the break, we were talking about why it's important to have these conversations because it makes us appreciate our lives that we are living a lot more. Absolutely. I think it, 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 that's one reason. I mean, of course, that it helps you be more conscious and aware of your life and, and, and take it and not take it for granted, but also because it helps you actually live better all the way through your life. If you are preparing and planning, your life right until the very end is going to be much more driven by your preferences and values than if you didn't talk about these things. Agreed. I I mentioned prior to the start of the show that I co-facilitate an end-of-life group, coincidentally, at the Malibu Senior Center, and I do this as part of my community service, and I find this group to be the most joyful older people that I have ever encountered. They are very aware of what they want, what their desires are, what they want that ending to look like. And talking about that end of life conveyor belt that you've written about is what is on their mind. And it makes them want to be more alive and happy with the years remaining. Absolutely. It reminds me of a, a conversation I had at an assisted living facility. They invited me, their end of life interest group invited me to come and speak. This was several years ago. And I remember it was a lot of mostly women um, in their mid 80s, and they were just this amazing group of firecrackers. And I remember they said to me after the talk, they invited me up for a drink, and we sat down and we're drinking, and the one of them said to me, well, we all have our pulsed forms filled out. I don't know if you know what a pulsed form is. Physician order for life-sustaining treatment, which is a, which is a, a, it's a doctor's order that basically says do not, you know, do not intubate this person, do not do CPR. There's, you can check off whichever treatments you do or do not want. And I said, wow, you know, why? You know, you're all living these <laughs> wonderful lives. You're, you're in your mid-80s. You know, if, if God forbid you, you got a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, why wouldn't you want to come to the intensive care unit and have me, you know, intubate you and stabilize you and, and possibly get you back to, you know, your life here at this wonderful place where you've got your families and you're, you've got lovely food? And they, I was surprised that every single one of them said, we, we just don't want to take the risk that we won't get back to this life. We don't want to be in a situation where we'll, we'll be risking that. And it was surprising to me because I thought, well, if I were in my mid-80s and pretty healthy, I'd probably want the doctor to try to resuscitate me. If it wasn't working, then we could have another conversation. My family knows that I wouldn't want to stay in a prolonged state on a, on a breathing machine. But I would want to try. But they were very clear. And I thought, you know what? Who am I? to tell these people what their preferences should be. And that's the beauty of this whole thing is it's very personal and everyone's allowed to make their own choices and their own preferences, but people need to be brought into that conversation. And what you write about is a very intimate exploration of this area. You know, it's, um, I mean, I find it kind of exquisitely intimate when people start talking in this way because it's it is the last frontier. It's not something that is spoken about openly up until now, and I'm I'm hoping that that national conversation is changing. I think it is, but you write from such a beautiful uh, perspective. You know, the stories, patient stories. Maybe you could share another one or two with us. Oh my goodness, I have so many. <laughs> I know well, you do. <laughs> 
let's see. Um, well, I'll tell you the story that's the epilogue of my book, which is, I think, one of the, the most sort of heartfelt stories. But it's, it's only one of a number of these types of stories. This was a woman who had very serious metastatic lung cancer, and she loved life. She was young. She was in her early 60s. She had children and grandchildren and loved to drink wine and just, just loved to garden. And when she found out she had cancer, she said, that's okay, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to do it. And so she went through course after course of chemotherapy, and she was willing to fight, but she wasn't getting better. And by the time I met her, it was in the intensive care unit, and she came in in shock, which means that she had absolutely no blood pressure. And we resuscitated her, and we got her blood pressure up. And, you know, when I came in the room the next day after we'd sort of gotten her fixed for that temporary fix, you know, her family said, okay, we're ready to go again. Give, bring on some more chemotherapy. And I realized that they, they just didn't seem to realize that this was a progressive illness and she was close to death. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I succeeded in my job here. I got her blood pressure up, and she's, they're supposed to send her to the floor now to another team. But I think this woman needs to hear from me because I don't know if anyone's going to tell her that she's actually dying. I think she needs that information. And so I was terrified, but I sat down and told this was only a few years ago. So it's, I've been doing this for a long time, and I still find it difficult. I sat down on the side of her bed. Her daughter kind of glared at me because she seemed to see that I was coming in with some bad news. It was like a no bad news zone. And I said, <laughs> you know, I think that we're, we're coming to a point where I think, you know, if we continue along this path, you're going to end up really being attached to machines. And I, I want to make sure that's what you want. And they essentially kicked me out of the room. Thank you, but, you know, please leave. And I did. I felt terrible. And I thought, did I make a mistake by telling them this information? And about a day and a half later, I went up to her room in, on, on the floor. She was now being cared for by a ward team. She was out of the ICU. And I walked in, and I was kind of nervous because I knew they were angry at me. And when I walked in the room, I saw her sitting there with a big, huge smile on her face. She was ready to go home. And she was talking to her daughter who was at home, and she was, her face was on the iPad. And I heard her daughter saying, Mom, which bottle should I open? And when, when this patient saw me come in the room, she smiled and said, Hey, Dr. Zitter, you know, Becky's at home getting ready to open a nice bottle of wine. I'm going home with hospice. And in that day and a half, they had processed what was happening. They had heard what I had said. They had dealt with it and decided that she wanted to live her life. And she got another four weeks at home wow. with hospice. Her bed was in the living room. They had a wonderful time. Her funeral was beautiful. Everyone just, it was a celebration of a beautiful life. And if we hadn't had that conversation, I think she would have continued on the end-of-life conveyor belt and died on machines. Wow, that, that really is a, a very beautiful story and one that I think really serves as a, a, a lesson for all of us, why it's important to pay attention, have these conversations, and I think also bridge the gap between fear and loathing of the doctor. And I hate to say that because you're a lovely doctor, clearly, <laughs> but a lot yes. of us um, are very anxious. You know, we see the doctor as an authority figure, and I think there's a, a lesson in that, too. I think we doctors have a lot of work to do in terms of making this experience less hierarchical. And I, I, I personally am a, I'm a huge advocate for making this more of a collaboration. And I think the doctor that needs to be welcoming and, and, and welcoming in and inviting in patient and family into this, into this conversation about what to do next because 
the doctor may be the you know the the expert in the disease, but the doctor is not the expert in you. And so for us to think that we know how to make decisions about patients who are nearing the end of their lives is is hubris, honestly. It's not it's it's not realistic. We don't have the information that you have about what is best for you. And so we need to form a collaboration with you, informing you of what's going on and how things are looking medically, and then really requesting from you more information about where to go next. And I think this also speaks to how American doctors certainly are being educated to possess a more empathetic and compassionate bedside manner. It's not sympathy that we want. We want you to walk in our shoes with us and give us mm-hmm. feedback. Like if you were in my situation, what would you do, doctor? Which humanizes you. Right. right. And doctors are very uncomfortable doing that. We have been taught that you know, patient autonomy is the most important thing of all. And for us, patient autonomy has kind of taken on this meaning of, well, let the patient decide what the patient wants to do. And we've sort of almost abdicated ourselves. We've taken ourselves out of the relationship. I mean, how can you expect a patient and family to know what to do in these complex medical situations? It's, it's, it's not, you know, it, it, it's hard enough for us doctors to know necessarily, uh, but to expect a patient to just be making decisions you know, without our input and, and support and suggestions, I think is not is not realistic. We're almost out of time, but as you were speaking, something popped into my mind, the word servant leadership, because the work that physicians and healing arts practitioners do is very much a service-based industries, but there's also a leadership aspect, you know, like we're, we're, we're teaching others how to live or in your case, how to die. And I'm wondering if there might be a reframe or another way of looking at the way we relate with our doctors and our doctors to our patients, keeping that in mind, this servant leadership concept. It's interesting. I think it's a really interesting way to put it. I, I guess I would. it's the same thing that I'm advocating for in a sense, which is this collaboration, that we're a team. We, we've got to be working together in order to get the best results. And I hope you see that as a similarity. To me, that, that seems like what you're talking about. We, we yes. need to be working together as a team. Yes, and, and and it's that team effort that brings um, the consciousness of this process into the exquisite, intimate place that it really does reside. The book, once again, is Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. My guest today has been Dr. Jessica Zitter, MD. You can connect with her at her website, jessicazitter.com, on Twitter at Jessica Zitter, and on Facebook, Jessica Zitter. We're going to take a break. Here come the tunes. And when we come back, there'll be more. Thank you, Dr. Zitter. Thanks so much for having me. A pleasure, a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Herbert Anderson and Dr. Jessica Nuttick-Zitter, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. 
Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.